Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Shoulder Sig podcast. The aims of this podcast are to draw upon experts' knowledge to improve the physical therapy management of shoulder conditions, particularly related to the athlete. The management of shoulder injuries is complex, and we seek to provide the clinician with some tools to help them simplify their practice. Welcome again to episode two. My name is AJ Johnson, and I'm a current sports physical therapy resident at Mayo Clinic. During today's episode, we will be discussing shoulder dislocations with our featured guest, Dan Lorenz. Dan is a physical therapist and athletic trainer who is the director of sports medicine at Lawrence Memorial Hospital in Lawrence, Kansas. He holds many accolades, including completion of Duke University's Sports Physical Therapy Fellowship. He is the founder of the Sports Performance Enhancement SIG. He was the 2018 recipient of the Sports Medicine and Rehab Professional of the Year through the NSCA. He is the 2014 SIG Chair of the Year Award recipient and has been published numerous times in peer-reviewed journals. So I'm very excited to welcome Dan onto the podcast, and I would like like to thank him for his time today. Oh, gosh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, well, I'm super excited, and it's absolute pleasure to work with someone who's done so much to progress sports, sports physical therapy. As you can see, Dan's just been absolutely incredible with everything that he's provided to the profession. So really, really excited to have him on. Thank you. Yeah, just trying to carry on what others did before me. So, Yeah, and, and then hopefully this, the, this podcast can inspire the, the newer generations of clinicians to continue on in Dan's legacy, even though it's uh, pretty big shoes to fill. Oh, gosh. I don't know about that, man. It just it, it's easy when uh, you're passionate about it, you enjoy it, and you love your life's work. You know, it's it's that's probably been the the best gift, to be honest with you. That it's never felt like uh, the daily doldrums, getting up and going to a job you hate. I I've always really enjoyed this. So, oh, for sure, and I think that's that's really important. And um, best of luck as you're getting started on your residency program. That's it's it's exciting news. It is. Yeah. You know, um, we have, uh, with our, we have a brand new facility here, um, close to 17,000 square feet from a rehab standpoint, we have all the toys you would need. You know, we're, we're right on top of KU's campus and we have uh, contracts with a number of local high schools, we have athletic trainers in the schools and, you know, um, we have a concussion team here. So it's, it's just going to be a really, really nice opportunity, um, for hopefully we can get to make this happen. And, you know, honestly, if, if you look at the residency map, somebody put together a residency map not too long ago and the name is escaping me, but I mean, there was just this giant hole in the Midwest. I mean, there's just nothing. So, I mean, uh, we, we need to have a spot here. And I think with our, our brand new facilities and stuff, it'll be um, a great opportunity for, for a resident to come through. Yeah, no. And just from our brief interactions together, I think whatever, whoever goes there is going to have just an absolutely incredible experience. Hopefully that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so again, the topic for discussion today is more shoulder dislocation. And I think we're going to spend today's time more focused around the individual who has the acute traumatic shoulder dislocation rather than the chronic lead dislocating individual. So one of the things that going through residency, I've really tried to work on for myself is managing that patient expectations as well as timeframes from the initial onset of the injury to really frame rehab and to set realistic things for them to achieve. So when, if you have a patient coming in after their first time dislocation, what are kind of your big key educational pieces or your help or how are you managing their expectations on that first visit? Um, well, I'll, I'll just take without knowing anything about sport or, you know, kind of talent level. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't mean to be uh, flippant, but one of the things I always, 
when people always ask, would you operate on this or would you rehab it conservatively? One of the first questions I ask is, are they any good? <laughs> like, I, I really don't mean to be flippant, but it, my point is, is that if it's somebody that uh, is coming in and, and it's, it's high school and they're headed to a division one scholarship and, you know, we know, I mean, from Rao's classic study in the 50s, you know, that the redislocation rate is upwards of 90 percent, you know, so if it's a contact athlete going, you know, uh, and they got a college scholarship and, and you know, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at several weeks of rehab, probably, uh, you know, when in the season was it? things like that. So I, I'm not being evasive with my answer, but there's just so many things to consider. So back to what you were saying, like, you know, what are we talking education wise? Well, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, if I have a defensive back and he's nagging, like, when can I come back? I'm like, well, you can't raise your arm over that yet. So how are you going to de defend a pass? You know, so I think some of it is putting in the context for them of what they have to do. You know, if I got a pitcher and it's just like, you know, you can't lay in your bed with your hands behind your head, like watching TV, how do you expect to throw a pitch? So, I mean, sometimes, I think if you get them thinking a little bit rather than you getting pinned down to a time frame, I know everybody wants a time frame, um, you know, but, but you can also really get stuck if you give an exact time frame and they don't make it, you know what I mean? So, and everybody responds differently. I mean, heck, if even if you scour the literature, you look at how long, if you look at literature review on management of anterior shoulder dislocations, it is all over the map as far as you'll see, preparing for this i saw two articles of recent one said immobilized for one to three weeks another one said three to six weeks so i mean it really is a um it, it's literally trial and error with this um but i think putting it in the context of kind of asking the question back on other people it's like you know i did a muscle test with you you were in a lot of pain i mean do you really think you can handle packing somebody right now now um that doesn't mean if now this doesn't say that you know if i have a you know, Chiefs and Buccaneers are on Sunday and we had a guy, let's say, dislocate, uh, you know, in the AFC championship game or something like that. I mean, he's probably going to go with a Sully brace and, or some sort of a brace. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to keep him out from a, something like that. I mean, if, the biggest thing in sports medicine is can they protect and can they perform? So if, if, if they're able to, if I'm able to protect them at least to a degree with the assumption of risk and that they know the risks involved and if they're, if they accept it and mom and dad accept it, and like I said, they can actually perform and do their job. Well, I mean, I mean, that's, we have to make those hard decisions sometimes in sports medicine, obviously with the approval of the physician and things like that. So I hope I wasn't too long winded with that answer, but it's uh, that's a really broad question too. So. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I kind of want to start broad just to kind of gain, mm -hmm. because I am working with an athlete who's, who is scheduled to visit with the orthopedic surgeon. Um, and I've been working with her prior to that initial visit. And it's the difficult part is that managing of the expectations. She's an athlete. She's most likely going to progress onto surgery, but she's voiced that she doesn't want to. So then the question then becomes, we, we did all those objective testing. We've done dynamometry testing. She's limited. Um, so we've withheld her from sports, but then, it's, it's a difficult water to kind of navigate. And I think exactly alluding to your point, it's the context that matters. So. No, I, you know what, man, I, I say this a lot to young clinicians, um, you know, integrity matters. So, you know, I know you have their best interest in mind, but I think a lot of times we're in a way like attorneys, it's your responsibility to be informed. So you can give her the best information that you can. You need to know the literature and redislocation rates, you know, who's at most risk, those kind of things. Lay out the facts and, you know, here's what could happen. You may be just fine. 
you could roll the dice and you could say, see, Dan, I told you so. I made it. You're, you're right. You could be. But I, what I mean by the integrity side is you lay out the facts. Ultimately, they're going to have to make a decision for themselves. And it's one of those things that you told them honestly what you felt. You told them the facts. You go at the end of the home at the end of the day, looking in the mirror, saying you, you did your job. But ultimately, people are going to make a decision that best suits them. And you, you, it's one of those ones where you cross your fingers, you pray, whatever it is that you do to, to hope that it, that it doesn't backfire. No, for sure. And I think, and I think that's the important part is the making sure that the education that you provide them is there. And then you're empowering them to utilize that education in whatever sense that they are able to, um, bearing in mind that again, it is our license and we're trying to do whatever we appreciate to be as best for that individual patient at that specific time point. For sure. Um, all right. So then when we kind of take a look at the progression back from an anterior shoulder dislocation, what I found helpful, at least in my early career, is like bucketing or trying to develop different phases of rehabilitation. For example, after a dislocation, trying to restore normal range of motion, mechanics, mobility, um, restoring then strength as well as then moving into some stability, proprioceptive work, and then ultimately um, those return to play type activities. I guess my question is, at what point are you beginning, and you can correct me if I'm wrong with you, how you treat these and manage these patients, but at what point do you feel confident that they're able to progress to that next point? Next point, meaning like more, uh, what do you mean by that? Can you yeah, yeah. Next point, like, like, like more sports activities. Or? Yeah. So I think the most challenging part for me is the, once you've developed a good strengthening program, how are you determining that they're able to return back to the plyometric type things? For example, a baseball player, um, they're up in 90, 90. Now they're no longer apprehensive. They have pretty yeah. good strength on dynamometry testing, but how do you feel most yeah, confident? The strength, you know, the strength's got to be there. It's got to be, you know, uh, painless in my mind. Now, again, if I'm in season, Super Bowl's in three weeks, we're going to have to push those rules a little bit, right? I mean, again, protect and perform. So it might not, you know, nobody gets, nobody gets better during the season, right? So um, that makes it really hard. But again, ideal situation, you know, there's no hurry. Yes, I want the strength. I want the strength good. I don't want them feeling apprehensive, full range of motion. You know, we, of course, would have done, you know, um, you know, push-ups in a regular uh, context prior to doing any kind of explosive stuff. And even then, if I did move to explosive stuff, I would start doing like, you know, plyometric push-ups off of a counter or something, you know, where I'm more horizontal, more vertical and then work to more horizontal, you know, so those things would be first, um, you know, certainly the, you know, chest pass with the ball first before we did anything overhead, um, you know, and then there's always a debate about how heavy do you need to go? Well, again, if, who's in front of it always matters. But, you know, uh, we, we don't want to abandon those principles. Now, it, discomfort is one thing rather than pain. I mean, athletes, you know, that's where, again, hey, discomfort, you're an athlete. Athletes are uncomfortable at times. But I don't want any real, we want to avoid the sharp pains and, and, and things like that. So um, uh, does that does that answer your question? Or is it, you're on the right track, man. You didn't say anything wrong. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I think, uh, you know, having objective strength measures are, are the best way to go. But, you know, if you're in a a clinic that uh, I've heard this a lot when all my teaching that, well, my, you know, my clinic director won't buy us a HHD test. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. You may, if there's ability to look for a different job, that's got one, you might, but um, you know, at a minimum, at a minimum, you should not be able to break them on a test. Like, you know, I'll do a lot of times make tests with an HHD, but if, if, if I don't have an HHD, then it's gotta be a break test. Like I shouldn't be able to break them. 
So that, that to me is a, is a minimum necessary if that's all you got. No, and that definitely does help to answer that question because one of the things that I've also been thinking of is at, at the clinic I'm at, we have awesome equipment, we have access to these things, but then yeah. you're, you're on the sideline. Maybe the athlete has a subluxation event and you don't have a HHD there. So exactly alluding to your point, utilizing that break test may be of benefit if they're unable to um, be broken, quote unquote, for good strength. For sure. Yeah. Like I said, if I got somebody in the sideline and, you know, of course, team docs and stuff, they're going to look at all that too. But I mean, you know, if I'm by myself and there's no, there's no doc at a high school game in some rural town somewhere, and you know, I'm an athletic trainer on the sideline. Hey, if, if, if they can, if they can give me a, a really good contraction um, and there maybe there might be some discomfort, but as long as they're not flopping, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to let them, you know, if, if we can brace them and, 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 you know, uh, it's one of those ones we have to talk to mom and dad to get permission and those kind of things. But, you know, again, is this this freshman football where we're getting beat 55 to nothing or is it the state championship? You know, what I mean, that's what I said. A lot of this time, a lot of this is context, you know, and sometimes we have to make those tough decisions in sports medicine. No, and I think that's that's again to a point to drive home is that the context matters and mm-hmm. the individual matters. We can't do cookie cutter things, for example, right. trying to trying to get back to your other point as to like you're OK with discomfort at what point are you utilizing like 24 hour soreness rules for some of these individuals or how are you ensuring that your dosing of activity is appropriate and not causing regression? If that, if that makes sense. Well, I want to know like, where are you sore? Um, you know, I'll use the knee for an example. You know, I was sore after last session. Well, in your quads or in your knee? Well, it was in my quads. Oh, well, you're welcome. It was a good workout. You know what I mean? Like, uh, whereas if you're sore in the joint, well, I want to look for a fusion and, you know, how long did it last? You know, remember some of this too. I mean, I think as a profession, sometimes we hear that and we like panic, like we did too much. What we're doing is building load tolerance, right? So, I mean, sometimes it's okay to push the to push a bit. And if, you, I mean, they might be sore, it happens, right? But that tells us the status. Like if we just did, you know, uh, three sets of six overhead, you know, uh, medicine ball tossed us to a rebounder and, and they were, I didn't come back, man, I, my, my shoulder was sore last time. Like, how in the heck do you think you're going to handle, you know, playing a, a basketball game if you're a you know center or a forward, or how are you going to be a defensive back? I mean, it's one of those ones again, how, how bad was it? Was it bad enough? Like, could you muscle through it? Or was it really like you couldn't even get your shirt on? You know what I mean? So again, who's in front of you? How's their pain tolerance? Um, is it discomfort or is it pain? You know, it's kind of like, you're probably too young, but I don't remember the, the football movie, the program. Did you ever see that? Oh, I have. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I figured not, but it, it's a, it's a great movie. It's a great football movie from the, it, actually it's wonderfully terrible in the nineties, but um, you know, uh, James Kahn was the coach in the movie and anybody that's listened to this podcast probably smiling because I know what I'm going to say right now is that like his star running back was down on the ground. He's like, well, you heard he injured, you know, there's a difference, you know? So it's kind of one of those, it's kind of one of those things that, uh, uh, I, I'm okay. Like you going back to your question, the 24, sore, 24 hour soreness rules. I mean, if, if they're still sore 24 hours later, then we know that was kind of their, that was kind of what they can tolerate at this time. But if they're a little sore after the workout, maybe they wake up a little stiff and they're fine as they get moving proceed, you know? No, I think that's a really interesting point on it too. And something that I've tried to utilize is like more um, how they can self auto or how they can auto-regulate themselves. That's exactly um, right. And I think 
I think easily to, for example, like a bone stress fracture, like a, of the tibia, they can put palpation. And if they're experiencing more and more pain after activity, it's relatively easy. I think it's more challenging in the shoulder to have those, I guess, patient check-in tests, um, to determine if they're, uh, they're regulating appropriately other than, okay, is it just sore? Have you had any success with anything in particular with relationship to that? Well, you know, again, a lot of times I'm going to, I'm going to dial it back mm -hmm. way backwards here. So let's just say I have somebody, I'm going to go to a foot or a knee. Let's say I have somebody that's recovered from an ankle fracture or they had an ORF of their ankle or they had a total knee and their first day they go back to work and they come in and see you and they're like, man, this is so bad. I'm so stiff. I'm so swollen. I hurt really, really bad. And you're like, well, what happened? Well, nothing, I think, but I went back to work. I'm like, well, okay. So pause a bit. You've been coming to therapy for twice a week for three weeks. Doc gave you the clearance three days ago to start walking full-time. So you went from really doing nothing to walking full-time. Now you went to work eight hours a day where you're on your feet most of the day. Don't you think that that might be a reason you, you made a massive jump. You did couch to 5k in like a day. Right. So it's kind of, again, one of those ones where getting people to, to kind of come to this, come to the answer themselves. Right. So you're not having to tell them, but it's almost getting them to think of it, you know, uh, no different than the person that comes in and oh, I'm no better, you know, and you're like, well, let's talk about this a bit, you know, and then pull out their, their patient reported outcome scale. And, you know, like, well, first day, I mean, you said this and, you know, how's this now? Well, it's okay. I mean, so you get them kind of, you know, get them talking a bit and then they hopefully come to realization that they're probably a little better off than they think they're. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, that definitely does. And I think that is important and that's a tough conversation. And oftentimes, at least earlier on in the residency program, I was struggling of the, oh, I know better than when I came in. But I think exactly the point you're alluding to is help to coach them to get to the answer themselves rather than mm -hmm. just saying, here, here's your scores. Look at what you did. Um, you know, and you, and you well know, Andrew, that, uh, some people, um, are, are okay with what you say and they did, they just trust you. Other people are really pushing, you know, and, and the ones that are really pushing and demanding to be back, or I'm ready to go. And I'm like, wait a minute, we did three sets of six, uh, overhead toss on a rebounder and you were miserable for a day. Do you really feel that you're ready to uh, play first base again right now. I mean, I think you could do some grounders. I think you could get, you know, you know probably, you know, underhand toss some things. Uh, you know, you might be able to, depending, depending on what shoulder and stuff, maybe hit some fungos, but do you really feel like, you know, you're ready to go if just this little activity caused you that much irritation? So again, you get them thinking on their own rather than us, you know, like I said, telling them, you kind of lead them to the solution, right? Like, because they don't know it themselves, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I 100% agree with that. Um, I guess a um, couple of questions as we kind of wrap up our time. Um, what have you found that you struggle with earlier on in your career with the management of these shoulder dislocations that you wish you would have known? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Um, I think you kind of alluded to it. What's okay and what's not? you know, that they had a, um, you know, they had a dislocation. We're going to try and manage this non-operatively. Um, they have some discomfort. Uh, you know, do I have to, you know, if they have full range, let's just say I ask them to elevate and they go all the way up and they can do it and it doesn't hurt. 
you know, to me, I was wondering, well, geez, what about the soft tissue insult from the injury? Am I, you know, making a bigger problem, right? By, by allowing this, right? Um, you know, do I want them to tighten up a bit? But we know that once that injury happens, I mean, you can't shrink wrap the, the capsule by yourself, right? So once the damage is done, it's done, so to speak. I think one thing that's been interesting is, you know, and this is a thing that happened a number of years ago, probably early 2000s, but they actually talked about immobilizing an external rotation. You know, we've always immobilized with the forearm on the, on the, the navel, so to speak, but it's never really been any studies that show we have to do that. And those original studies out of Japan, and you can find them in JBJS, you know, that kind of, you know, kind of at a time that was kind of a fad to talk about, you know, should we mobilize an external rotation and, you know, and those kind of things. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is sometimes I wonder if the things we just accepted as common practice were actually the best things to do, Right. Because, you know, if you're immobilized on, on the, you know, on the navel, and then you bring them out in the ER, you know, and that really hurts. Well, I mean, they haven't been there, right? So are we doing a disservice by, you know, maybe at least, at least immobilizing them in neutral? I'm not saying you got to be in, you know, 45 degrees of ER like they did in some of those early studies. But, you know, uh, I think that some of it is kind of wondering if we were doing more harm than good with some of our, you know, just accepted practices. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and and that's an interesting topic too. Of, and I think summarizing the point is like knowing what we know now. Did we do harm, or did we not provide the best care back in the day? Right, right. And I and honestly, man, I think that you know, again, you're like, and I still wrestle with. I've been this twenty years. Like you said, when can they go to the next phase? When is it all right? I think you you take the biggest collection of information you have in front of you, and you, you got to make a decision, right? So that's why. You know, that's why sometimes when we get so wrapped up in studies and, and this and that, it's like, well, I don't have an exclusion criteria. I can't send this guy home. This doesn't fit the criteria of the study that I just read, right? Like, you still have to decide who's in front of you. And, and you know, there was an art, by the way, there was an article in Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine a few years, uh, probably 2010-ish, I think, by Creighton et al. It really talked about kind of the, you know, the, uh, the return to play decision-making and all the, the, the process that goes through it, you know, so the basic information, the demographics, so the physical signs, the, the measurements, you know, the, you know, can you pad it? Is it dominant side, you know, and then the, you know, uh, the other things like, you know, timing of the year, uh, masking the injury, pressure from parents and coaches, like all of that goes into this, right? So, you know, even if everything checks out objectively, some of these other peripheral things may still be a reason why the kid does it, doesn't play, right? So, I mean, the, the, this, this conundrum isn't going to matter. It, it's, it may be a little bit easier as you get older because you've been there before and you have a bigger end, but it's still tough no matter who, because every situation is unique. No, and I think like that's, that's been the struggle and for the knee and we're learning more about it now with our ACL return to sport testing batteries, but there's been relatively nothing outlined for shoulder injuries and return back to sport in regards to the testing battery. And I think that just leads to some of the ambiguity, at least for myself, I want to hang my hat on saying, yep, here's, they check this box. They check this box. They check that box. I feel more confident, but there's nothing that's necessarily been accepted, which is the toughest part to come to grasp with. Well, you know, you're right about that. I mean, I think um, our shoulder testing probably isn't, well, I mean, not that our ACL testing is that great either. Yes. Mm -hmm. The data, I think our training practices aren't good there. That's why those numbers are what they are. I think a lot of therapists just are not very good at loading 
people at those higher levels are still stuck in the two sets of 15 or three sets of 10 with everything around. All that being said, though, um, you know, we at least have a little bit better idea. You know, if they if they check all the boxes from a strength standpoint, they've they've done you know, they've, they've passed your upper extremity wide balance test by getting their hands in the ground. They've done some plow metrics and are having pain. You're doing, you know, one of the things I like to do with my contact athletes is I do a, a single arm dumbbell bench, you know, and, and, uh, what I do there is just take 30% of their body weight basically. And again, this is heavier, bigger athletes, obviously, but I'm just saying that, you know, we'll go side to side on this. And I would have seen some of this in the weight room anyway, because we'll do a lot of, you know, unilateral, uh, dumbbell bench and, you know, with, even with different weights and stuff to see how they handle like a, a perturbation, so to speak, but you can check all those boxes, but ultimately they got to get back to doing what they do. And we can't reproduce that speed in the clinic, no matter what you do, you can't reproduce what they're doing in the clinic. They got to get back out and pitch. They got to get back out in the volleyball court and start, you know, uh, you know, doing kills again and those kind of things. And there's only, you, you dose that increase their volume over time and see how they respond. That's all you can do. Yeah. And I think, that is something that I'm continuously coming to grasp with and speaking last week with Andrew, um, just using your rehab progression as its own test as to whether or not they feel comfortable. I think that's kind of what you're alluding to is you've put them in scenarios where, for example, your lineman doing dumbbell single arm press, um, you know what they're you know what the quality of their rehab has looked like and you know where they're still limited or having issues with, um, mm-hmm. and you're able to kind of address those and see the progression throughout. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give you examples. I said, sometimes we don't have to overthink this. Just trust your eyes. You know, if I give a lineman, let's just arbitrarily pick a 65 pound dumbbell for a, a, you know, a unilateral dumbbell press and I'm watching him do it. And, you know, he, on his non-dominant side, he just, you know, turns out 10 reps, no problem, consistent the whole, the whole time, you know, and then as involved side, he maybe gets eight, the last two, he gets them, but you know, there's maybe some shaking, maybe some loss of a, a nice consistent plane or, or trajectory. I'm sorry. That's a subtle indication that there's some, something else still a deficit there, right? Like they may have tested just fine on the handheld dynamometer testing, but when I see that, I'm like, okay, I'm still a bit concerned about that. That doesn't mean I don't let the guy play or let him progress back to things. It just means that, well, am I fully released? Well, probably not quite yet. Now it's a Super Bowl next week. Okay, I'll probably let you play. But I mean, if if it's not in an ideal world, that's why I said trust your eyes. What 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 are you seeing, you know, uh, in front of you as they perform this stuff? And I think sometimes that tells you. And I would just add one more thing too, you know. And and my colleague uh, and mentor, one of my mentors, Rob Panarello, mentions this a lot, you know, about the difference between skill and athleticism. Remember. You know, as we get people back, you know, we're the stuff we're doing clinically is we range strength and plyos, power and all that stuff. Like that's the athleticism part, the skill they have to get back and do like we just yes, we can maybe, you know, they can they can throw up a volleyball and smack it down on the ground in the clinic. It's still not the same as the, you know, the cognitive load of working in a game and, and the decision making reaction time. Like we've got to send them back. And, and they got to be go back to their sport coaches. And all we can do with that is monitor their, their volume so they're not doing too much too soon. And, you know, it's that there's so many interval programs right now that, that are out there. I mean, so many sports have published interval programs. It's not perfect, you know, but a lot of times, you know, unless you're a PT working directly with the team every single day, 
a lot of times you're having to hand people an article and say, here, follow this, because that's all we got, and then tell them the soreness rules, right? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's it just that it, it, sometimes you do the best you can with the resources you have. Yeah, and I think and I think that's 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 a really really solid point is to trust your eyes again and then doing the best to your ability and then allowing the locus of control on the athlete to help to to regulate and to allow them to also aid in your decision making too. Um, I think as we kind of look to wrap up here, I'd like to pose one final question for you, Dan. Um, So if tying back into the shoulder dislocations, what piece of evidence or what do you want to see more explored in the future to best aid your management for shoulder dislocations? Um, well, interestingly, I don't know if you saw in sports health journal, uh, this month they did a systematic review of, of braces after shoulder dislocation. And, you know, uh, really just like kind of the ACL braces that they really don't do that. much. So are we not doing it right? Um, I still think there's some, we should, there should be more studies on, are we, what's the best way to immobilize these? You know, I'm not sure ER, is it just from a comfort standpoint, bumping into doors and other people, because now you're taking up more space, but, you know, I mean, should we maybe do more neutral versus internal rotation? You know, I, I, I think we haven't really pinned that down yet. Um, it, this is hard to what we'd like to see because every injury is different. Um, but I, I agree. I think our, um, we're getting better, like in baseball, as far as workload management and stuff, you know, you know, in effort and intent, when we talk about returning pitchers and, you know, like we've looked at the flat versus ground throwing or long toss, like what's the stress on the elbow? Like, I think we're getting better at those things. So, you know, to me, that's the equivalent of us having more GPS data for them, right? Like as we have GPS data for, you know, how far a wide receiver actually travels in a game. You know, to me, the workload management as far as effort and intent when they hit a volleyball or when they throw a baseball, that's kind of in my mind, you know, where where things like, you know, some of these sleeves that measure force and stuff like that, the technology will allow us, to, I think, to better monitor those things. So that to me, that's kind of the exciting thing that's going to happen in our future years that will have be a little more uh, specific uh, about what we're doing rather than here, just follow this, you know, this progression, so to speak. No, that it, it is an exciting time. And I agree. We've kind of developed these return to throwing, for example, protocols without really being aware of, um, and we're getting better at it, of the intent, as well as then the overall volume, because we know that it's not just the volume of throws, it's the intent of throws, it's how they were feeling that day, it's how stressed they are, all those different factors are playing into the to optimal workload as well as tolerance. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff we don't know is, is five pitches at max effort uh, worse or better than uh, 25 changeups. You know what I mean? Like, so there's things like that, that I think we're, we're still learning, you know, and, and like I said, all of us are doing, I think the best we can with the resources we have and the information, we have, you know, um, but it's on us though, to stay current and be aware of those changes and not get complacent and just arbitrarily keep handing out the, you know, uh, keep handing out the, um, the program that we used 20 years ago, you know? No, for sure. And I think on that note of continuing to develop yourself as a clinician and holding yourself to the highest standard, I think I want to kind of end the podcast with that. Um, so again, 
Thank you for tuning in to the Shoulder Sig podcast. And again, I'd like to thank Dan Lorenz for taking the time to be with us today. Um, I would also like to thank the board of the Shoulder Sig of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy for their continued support with this podcast. You can reach out to us with any feedback, ideas, or topics you'd want covered via our email at shouldersigpodcast at gmail.com or by engaging with us in the Shoulder Sig Mobilize app. This podcast will be available across all the major music and podcast streaming services. We hope you can join us next time, but until then, we hope you have a great rest of your day.